Acts chapter 22, as we work our way through this great book. And as you're turning there, let me read for you words of Jesus in Matthew 10 that are highly relatable to Acts 22. In Matthew 10, in this earliest of commissions, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Now, not every disciple will be arrested and tried or perhaps even executed someday. But some will. Many have. And still, every Christian can find real encouragement and direction from these words of Jesus in Matthew 10. It's a reminder that Jesus has sent us into the world, every one of us, if we're Christians. We are to represent Jesus publicly and boldly. We're to speak for him. It's a reminder that there will be opposition as we do so, whether it's simply insult or interrogation or death. Matthew 10 shows us, though, that God's grace will be sufficient to match whatever the circumstances, no matter how hard. Matthew 10 teaches us that we don't have to be anxious even in the most threatening, most intimidating situations. Nevertheless, we should be thoughtful. You can't coast through persecution or coast through trials or even coast through this mission. Jesus makes it clear that this is a bit like walking a tightrope. He says that we should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What does that mean? Well, serpents are sleuthy. They're shrewd. They're vigilant. They're sharp. Doves are innocent and pure and gentle and even vulnerable. It is possible for us to have a little too much snake and not enough dove. Do you know people like that, maybe yourself? Too much snake and not enough dove and you're slippery and you're sneaky. But too much dove and not enough snake and you're dumb. There's no strategy, there's no thought, there's no proper godly agenda. Well, a great example of Snake-like, dove-like behavior is Paul in Acts chapter 22 and 23. In fact, in these chapters and in the last one-fourth of the book of Acts, we see Paul living out Matthew 10. What Jesus said there, though Paul wasn't there to hear it firsthand, is indeed what Paul is experiencing and doing. He is, he is arrested and under trial and and giving a defense. He's, he's bearing witness for Christ boldly, shrewdly, humbly, and gently. Let's read it. Chapter 22, 
starting in verse 22, and we'll read to the 11th verse of chapter 23. This picks up right after Paul's defense to the Jewish mob while in custody of the Romans. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. In looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and condemned, uh, contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let me suggest five surprises and lessons in this passage. Five surprising, instructive lessons. Number one, Paul was protected in seemingly strange ways. We saw that last week. We'll see more of it this week. We'll see it again in humorous ways and surprising ways next week. Recall last week, 
Rumor had spread that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. A clamor arose, a a riot formed, all centered on Paul. They were beating Paul. They were intending to kill him. Just then, hundreds of Roman soldiers ascended on the crowd, and they rescued Paul. We said last week, this is strange, isn't it? Paul, a Jew, was about to be killed by the Jews and was rescued and protected by Romans. Paul was, of course, arrested as they tried to figure out what was going on, but while arrested, he's at least safe from the mob outside. Of course, that wasn't good luck or good fortune. It was God. God was behind it all. God had led Paul to Jerusalem. God was with Paul in Jerusalem, and God would be with Paul until his dying day. No sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will, Jesus taught us. Not one of your hairs on your head will perish apart from your father's will. He's in control. He protects us. Remember from last week, Paul gave that speech in chapter 22, showing that his encounter with the risen Christ forever changed him. There's no other explanation for how he was once the the chief persecutor of Christians and then overnight became the foremost promoter of Christ. But as soon as he mentioned the G word, Gentile, that Jesus had sent him to the Gentiles with this message, well, the riot started up again. And they were more hell-bent on seeing Paul dead. As we read this morning... Verse 22, they said he didn't deserve to live. They ripped off their coats and threw dust in the air, symbols of mourning and outrage. And once again, Paul is rescued by the Romans because he's put back into the barracks. He's he's put away from the murderous crowd. And yet, God's seemingly strange ways of rescuing his people doesn't mean that they live a trouble-free existence. There's protection amidst the threat. So notice verse 24, Paul is protected from the murderous crowd, and now he's going to be examined or interrogated by flogging. Flogging. This is, this is worse than any beating, worse than any whipping. The Roman flogging or flagellum, it was a, a whip with eight or nine different straps or strands at the end, and each one of those strands was embedded with metal or bone. And with a fl- the right flick of the wrist, it was meant to to dig into flesh and muscle and then be ripped out, pulling with it flesh and muscle. Those who were flogged by the Romans would often be crippled for life afterwards, and some died from this. This is what Paul faces. He's been protected from the murderous crowd. He's about, though, to be flogged. He's stretched out on the rack, ready for it. 
Well, this theme of God's protection in strange ways will continue to pop up throughout our passage and again all through the end of the book of Acts. Secondly, notice that Paul was willing to assert his legal rights at times. He was willing to assert his legal rights. This is almost humorous. Paul waits to the absolute last minute before that first blow of the flogging whip hits him, hanging there on the rack, stretched out. Whips are in hand. You can imagine Paul, by the way, did I mention I'm a Roman? And that stops everything because Roman citizens had certain rights, like a fair trial and no beatings or chains until the fair trial. And Paul hasn't had a fair trial, and he's been chained and was about to be beaten. And to violate these Roman citizens' rights was criminal. Cicero said to bind a Roman is a crime, to flog him is an abomination. So as Paul mentions the word Roman citizen, you can imagine someone bumps the record player. Everyone drops their whips. Someone goes to the tribune to tell him, Paul says he's a Roman citizen. The tribune comes to Paul, and they discuss Roman citizenship. The tribune says to Paul, I'm a Roman citizen, and it cost me a pretty penny. Paul one-ups him and says, I was born a citizen, which means his dad was a citizen. Possibly his grandpa was a citizen. We don't know how, but it's in the family. Paul is a legitimate citizen. He probably has papers on him. There's no mention of Paul giving any proof, but you can imagine if you were the Apostle Paul traveling all over these lands, you would probably want to keep record of your Roman citizenship handy. It's already come in useful before, back in chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. And that reminds us that this is a curious thing when Paul claims his Roman citizenship sometimes, not always. Back in chapter 16, he didn't mention that he was a Roman citizen until after he'd been thrown into prison and beaten with rods, and it was only the day after when the officials decided to release Paul and Barnabas quietly. That's when Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, and I want a public apology for your imprisonment and beatings. And that's what he got. It would seem then that Paul was willing to take a beating and to spend the night in prison if it served the cause of the gospel somehow, and he was willing to pull out his Roman citizen papers and even throw his weight around a little bit if it served the cause of the gospel. So in chapter 22... Notice he didn't assert his rights as a Roman right away. He sure could have, but he waited a little bit. Why here? Why now? Well, it wasn't simply to avoid the pain of flogging, I don't think. I don't think it was a moment of weakness, of him being cowardice and folding. Perhaps it was simply about staying alive believing the Lord had other plans for him in the future. 
Back in chapter 19, Paul spoke not only of going to Jerusalem, but then on to Rome. And he believed the Lord had a plan for him to do that. Whatever the case, whatever the timing, whatever the specific motivations for claiming Roman citizenship, we have to say, for Paul anyway, it was always gospel strategy. Sometimes he was willing to forego his rights, and sometimes he was willing to assert his rights if it served the gospel. So here are some implications for us. Number one, Christians, like any other citizens in this country or any country, they can assert rights drawn from the laws of the land. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with with Christians hiring an attorney to legally make the case that they are free to refuse making a cake for a same-sex wedding. I'm in favor of organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, which ably represents people like the the famous cake maker or the, the florist. Number two, we Christians should praise God for whenever government gets it right, even kinda. Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained human governments to keep peace, to protect the weak, and to provide justice. Sometimes they get it wrong, like in Acts 22, when they're going to interrogate by flogging. Sometimes they get it right when they break up a riot, when they protect a guy who's about to get killed, or when they simply honor Paul's Roman citizenship. Thank God for those who work in the civic arena of laws and legislation. Pray for those who are in those positions. Third, it's not a given that laws or rights will always remain the same. They differ from country to country, as you probably know, and they differ from time to time. It's not a given that Christians will always have certain rights. And history has proven well that Christians can survive without their rights. They can survive in a government that is hostile to Christians. Number four, we should marvel at and find comfort in God's meticulous, mysterious providence. His providence is his sovereign provision and care and direction. It's his orchestration of our lives. Here you've got Paul's Roman citizenship coming in handy, and it goes back a generation or two. Here you have intricacies and decisions and conversations all involved in in Paul's proclamation of the gospel and protection from death. Number five, and lastly... Like any other right or privilege or gift, Christians should look for maximal opportunity for Christ to shine. The gospel, like Paul's priorities, should be the priority for all of us. So for the Christian, rights and our rights are not an end in themselves. That's not the end game, my rights. For the Christian... We want religious freedom, not just because we've always had it, not just because 
it's in the Constitution. Those are good arguments. But we Christians want religious freedom for the gospel's sake, for, for our neighbor's sake. And so keep 1 Timothy 2 close in mind these days. 1 Timothy 2, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving should be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. Why? Well, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, all kinds of people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thirdly, now I'm back to my bigger outline. I know there was five under number two, if you're a good note taker. Here's number three in the big outline. Paul lost his temper and apologized. Get that, isn't that a surprising lesson for us? In chapter 23, Paul finds himself in a new trial. The tribune is, is vigilant about trying to figure out what was going on in that riot chaos back in the temple area a, a day or two ago. Flogging, that's not going to work. Paul's a Roman citizen. And so he calls in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, to interrogate Paul. And perhaps they'll have an understanding of Paul's theology or his, his false teaching what is it? What's the trouble? What's, what's the issue at stake? So Paul begins with a, a bit of a defense in verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What a statement. It didn't mean that Paul was perfect. It didn't mean that he didn't have a horrible past. It meant that his past sins and his present failures had all been settled on Jesus Christ on account of the cross and the resurrection. All that was settled. We, we quoted from Philippians 3 last week where Paul, he's putting all his eggs into this basket, Jesus's righteousness, not his own. So with a clear conscience, he can talk about his life up to this day before God. It's all settled. But since the Jewish leaders have already assumed that Paul is a blasphemer and a false teacher, him claiming to have a clear conscience before God for his whole life, well, it, it, it's self-incriminating. And so with just one sentence into his defense, the high priest demands Paul to be punched in the mouth. And Paul responds immediately, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, this was true. All this was true. This high priest was famously nasty. Josephus, the historian, tells us that he, was, uh, he had a short temper and he stole from the other priests. It was true that he was a hypocrite. Paul was being tried for violating the law, and here he is in the interrogation violating the law. So Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. Picture a, a moldy, decaying wall with a fresh coat of white paint on it. 
It looks clean on the outside, but it's dead on the inside. It's coming down. So Paul says, God is going to strike you. And that was a prediction which actually proved true a year later when the high priest died. There's no denying the truth of what Paul said here, but Paul admits that it was wrong. He apparently didn't know that this was the high priest who had ordered the slap. You might wonder, how did he not know it was the high priest? I mean, Paul is a a former Pharisee. Well, here the scholars go round and round in the commentaries. Some say, well, Paul must have been a good ways away from the high priest. Others say, well, this was a thrown-together trial. Maybe the high priest was in his street clothes. He just came from the gym. Sure. Others say Paul famously had poor eyesight. And maybe he just couldn't tell the difference between a high priest and a white wall. Galatians 4 and Galatians 6 do seem to indicate that Paul may have had bad eyesight. Is it that bad? I don't know. The point is Luke doesn't tell us any of this. He just simply says that Paul didn't know it was the high priest and that Paul said that he wouldn't have said what he said or wouldn't have said it just the way he said it if he had known it was the high priest. It's a matter of honor. He quotes Exodus 22 where God says not to speak evil of one of your rulers. The high priest as a priest may not be very relevant for Paul who thinks that Jesus is the final high priest, and all other priesthoods are now extinct or useless. But the high priest was also a ruler. In fact, in days without a king on the throne, the high priest would have been Israel's highest ruler. What Paul said of him was true, and yet it probably wasn't spoken with the best of motives. It was probably out of anger. Maybe he lost his temper. It wasn't honorable. So again, we learn that Paul is a really godly guy, but he is just a guy. He, he, he's an amazing example, and yet he, he's not perfect. He, he himself admitted so in Philippians 3. We saw him part with Barnabas back earlier in Acts, and they parted because they were really ticked at each other. They had lost their temper there. But Paul is an example to us, not just in the amount of frequency that Paul is godly and righteous and committed and all that, but even here in his his admission of wrong. Isn't it amazing? In the midst of all this ill treatment and false accusations and law-bending, and on and on we could go about the faults of his opponents And how bad these circumstances are, Paul loses his temper, says something a little too hot, and he doesn't defend it. He eats it. He owns it. He was quick to admit it. It's dove-like, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 4, he said, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. How dove-like. I wonder if that came to mind as he let a slip of the tongue come out of his mouth against the high priest, but then asked for forgiveness. 
Now, fourthly, Paul, notice this, he shrewdly entangled his opponents or his persecutors. In this next paragraph, he's he's a bit serpent-like, isn't he? I mean, if he was dove-like in his apology, here he is a holy serpent. Knowing that the council's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, he throws a theological grenade into the room. You see, Pharisees and Sadducees were, yes, both leaders of Israel. They had to work together, yes, but they were very different culturally and theologically. And really, the biggest difference they had theologically was over the question of whether there would be life after death, whether our physical bodies would be, in the end, reunited with our spiritual souls. The Pharisees adamantly said yes. The Sadducees adamantly said no. And so Paul, a Pharisee, we would say former Pharisee, here he puts it in present tense, I am a Pharisee. We might say not currently practicing, right Paul? But he he says, I'm a Pharisee and I'm on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead. Now there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. The essence of what Paul believes And the essence of what he is facing opposition for is the resurrection of Jesus, right? But the resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection of the dead, that has seen its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul can connect them. And Paul can say, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And he doesn't mention Jesus. He'll see if the conversation gets there or not. It doesn't. It doesn't need to. It does its job simply to to divide and distract. Mere mention of the word resurrection and these two great parties start throwing food at each other. They go from being unified and focused on cornering Paul legally to being divided and distracted. It's like Paul tossed a bone into the pack of dogs, and the next thing you know, all the dogs' leashes are tangled up. And Paul's just sitting there with a smile. Paul sides with the Pharisees, who on this point were actually right. Not everything the Pharisees believed were, was wrong. What's more amazing, though, is that the Pharisees side with Paul, verse 9. And they're essentially saying, if this is about resurrection, then we side with resurrection. And we're against you Sadducees. They even defend Paul in remarkable ways, verse 9. They say, what if a spirit or an angel has spoke to him? And then it gets ugly. Notice the verbs in verse 9 and 10. They contended sharply. Dissension became violent. Paul was about to be torn into pieces. And once again, in come the Romans. They bring peace and protection to the situation. Paul goes back to the barracks alive. He's still in custody, but he's alive and not dead. Again, God's Seemingly strange protection is at work. Now, fifth and lastly, notice in verse 11 that Paul could take courage 
in God's presence and purposes. In the midst of all this, God, Paul could take courage in God's presence and purposes. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What a crazy couple of days this has been. It's just a couple of days ago that Paul was in the temple doing this really nice and peaceable thing of paying for the haircuts of four guys who were doing a Nazarite vow. It was a nice moment. It was a nice thing. And then all of a sudden, riot, beatings, arrest, prison, spending night, a night in jail. Just picture a Roman jail. It's not the Motel 6. It's not even a Motel 6 without the TV or a Motel 6 that's rather hot with no air conditioning. I mean, this is, this is a dank cell. This, this means rats on the floor. This is no comfort whatsoever. He's there alone. Notice there's no we mentioned here. Luke, the author, who sometimes writes with the word we and us, showing that he's right there by Paul's side. You don't find any of those words in this passage. Paul's been arrested alone. He's on his own. But the Lord was with him. In the last few days, he's been in and out and up and down. He's been, he's been punched. He's been racked. He's been yelled at and threatened. He's back in the jail. You wonder where it's going. But the Lord was with him. The Lord stood by him. What beautiful words. Now this is probably a vision or an actual appearance of the risen Savior. That's special. Paul had it a couple of times. But keep in mind that it is true of every Christian that the Lord stands by them. The Lord is with them. The Lord's presence is there. He is near to the brokenhearted. Sometimes Paul can say, no one stood by me, but the Lord stood by me. And then he just means the Lord was on his side or the Lord was spiritually near or he felt his presence. Every Christian can be assured in times of trouble and loneliness that the Lord's with them. How many times the Psalms talk about that? It's beautiful. But again, for Paul, this is probably a vision or an actual appearance of Jesus with these words. As you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. This isn't the end, Paul. You will be protected. You must testify. You will testify. And this is his work. This is his calling to testify to the facts about Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, there's a lot that's assumed in those words, and we got to tell you about them. I mean, you just got to know what that means. Paul's message was about the facts of Jesus. These facts, that Jesus, God in the flesh, lived righteously and perfectly his whole life, died sacrificially on that cross for sin, and was raised on the third day, now lives forevermore. And so he offers forgiveness of sins 
to any who will simply believe what he said is true and trust him for it. If you will put your hope in him and in nothing else for salvation, then he will remove all your guilt. He will restore you to the God you were made to love and worship and relate to. He will adopt you. He will be your friend. He will lead you. He will be your salvation and your satisfaction. These are the facts about Jesus. This was Paul's message. This was his mission, getting that message out there. That's why Rome is mentioned here. That's kind of the ends of the earth, the ends of the known world at that time. Rome was the plan. Jesus is here confirming that Paul wasn't supposed to stop in Jerusalem and stay there or die there, but to go on. Jesus is getting the word out. These are the acts of the risen Lord. He's orchestrating a plan for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And he's using strange people and strange things. He's using Roman citizenship and infighting among the Jewish sects. He's using Paul, using his weakness and his hot temper and his boldness and clarity. He's using imprisonments and trials and riots. Need I go on? It's everything. He's using everything. All things are working together for good, not just my personal good, but for God's good in the world. All things are working together for good, for gospel good. The Lord in the book of Acts was opening doors in surprising ways. I love that phrase, open doors, which Paul uses elsewhere for gospel opportunities. Paul prayed for open doors. Paul was given open doors and took advantage of those open doors for the gospel. We also see Paul sort of pushing on and peeking in doors to see if this one's open. Now, we Christians today... Many of us. I think we would spot an open door for the gospel if that open door just fell on us really hard. Right? Whoa, well, that, that's obvious, you know. I think most of us would, would love to have the opportunity of, the, of Philip, who encountered an Ethiopian reading Isaiah 53 and was saying out loud, Someone help me understand this. Philip climbs aboard and tells him. That's easy evangelism. That's a real open door. It was a literal open door. What kind of open doors do you really expect, though? Like that? Is that what you're waiting for? Are you waiting for someone to use the language of 1 Peter 3.15? Could you tell me about the hope that is within you? But please do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, it's a sign. They actually know this verse. I got to tell them. So where, where are the open doors in your life? They're unique to your circumstances and your station of life. What doors are you peeking in, poking on? It might be a closed door. I mean, sometimes the door slams and you hear the door lock and you go, well, that's a closed door. And you go on down the road. But I wonder if 
were strategic enough. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Are you thinking about gospel opportunities? Are you looking for better ones? Are you thinking at times that you are all about gospel opportunities, but you really just don't take the next step? Well, these are questions I ask of myself all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've thought about kids' sports. Uh, Our kids are now at a Christian school, and so most of their sports are tied to that. There was a season when we did sports outside of a Christian school, and one of the big reasons for it was to be around unbelievers more, especially as a pastor. This is my full-time job. I'm around you people a lot, and I love it. Uh, I need to work to get outside and to work to be around non-Christians. That doesn't mean I talk to them, though. That doesn't mean I actually bring up anything. Well, I mean, sometimes I do, but I, I'm not strategic enough. I'm not thoughtful enough. I'm not bold enough. So we all have to ask ourselves hard questions about gospel opportunities and open doors and where the Lord would have us just push a little, just peek in there. Or maybe it's staring at you in the face. There's an open door here. I can say that. I can ask that question. Their question can lead me to go in this direction. Well, may the Lord give us wisdom. But we can take courage. The Lord said to Paul, take courage. Christian, take courage. The Lord is at your side. Jesus sent his disciples into the world to make disciples. And lo, he is with them always, even to the ends of the age. Christian, take heart. The Lord is at your side and calls you to testify to the facts about him. This is who you are. This is your mission. This is what Christians do. And he will see you through until the last day. You may never go to Rome. You may never find yourself in prison. You will probably not know where your last stop is going to be. But you can know that there's a last stop. The Lord knows, and he'll see you through all the way to the end, and then into eternity with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful mission that you have given to us. We pray these words that Paul used in Colossians 4 as he asked them to pray for him. That God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mysteries of Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would make it clear. We pray we would know how we ought to speak. We pray we would walk in wisdom toward outsiders and make the best use of our time. May our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we might know how we ought to answer each person. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us a greater awareness of your plans for us and your purposes for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.